Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Last time, we promised to come back to the questions of narrative, storytelling, and fiction that the parables of Jesus often inspire. Does the fact that Jesus teaches in parables tell us anything about the value of literature? Should we avoid reading made-up stories in favor of factual books, or are there truths that can only be grasped by way of fiction? Let's see now if we can figure out the truth about fiction. Well, in our last episode, I promised that we would come back to the topic of storytelling and narrative and even talk a little bit about literature. And that's what we're going to do now. We've talked about parables and the way that Jesus's use of parables is often a springboard for people in the church to talk about creativity and narrative and a lot of things like that. And that's good. There's no denying that the fact that Jesus tells stories is inspirational to those of us who love stories. Even though we were careful in the last episode to point out that when Jesus explains why he tells stories, it's not the sort of uh, uh, warm and fuzzy reasons that we often think. Even so, he's storytelling, and that introduces interesting questions about how Christians should feel about stories, narrative, that sort of thing. And and Cameron, you were sharing that you have a tendency during wintertime to devote yourself more to reading fiction. And you're actually wading through a pretty complicated novel right now. <laughs> That's right. It's Lauris by Eugene... I can't remember his last name. Do you remember? Oh, that's... Vodolinskin or something? Yeah. (laughs) It's Russian. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yes. Lauris, the the first name is Eugene, the author. Yeah. Russian, contemporary Russian author. You know, usually I'm actually reading uh, an older Russian Mm -hmm. novel, frankly, in the middle of winter. I'm always drawn to Dostoevsky or Tolstoy. Sure. I've spent a lot of time in moscow (laughs) in these winters but yeah so i'm reading lowers right now but it it just got me thinking as a christian what should i what should i be thinking about this novel how how should christians be if they read at all how should they be thinking about novels should they be reading novels as opposed to other things there's there's a lot of questions i want to explore and of course you yourself are a novelist pastor mark and i know you have lots of thoughts about this. So I was hoping we could toss around some questions. And I actually think my first one for you is what got you on the road to becoming a novelist of all things? Why, why fiction as opposed to all the other genres? When I was a kid, I always wanted to be a storyteller. I originally imagined being a comic book artist. Mm. And so my first creative efforts were all um, illustrated but it turns out Planet of the Apes is copyrighted material. <laughs> and, and eventually I figured out I couldn't just yeah. tell new Planet of the Apes stories and, and make a living out of it. And, and also my drawing skills never developed beyond a certain point. So even today when I draw pictures, they look like they were drawn by a 10-year-old. <laughs> so it wasn't going to be comic books. And 
I don't know. I, I, I never really questioned whether or not I wanted to, you know, write fiction. I just always did and, sure. and always imagined myself doing that. And so it was a long process. You know, I wrote my first novel when I was an undergraduate and, um, it was never published and that's probably for the best. I'm, I, I, I don't need to say probably it's for the best. And, uh, you know, eventually went to grad school and studied fiction. And that's, I, I have to say my, my first love and, mm-hmm. and definitely the, the work that I have always felt called to by God. Mm-hmm. And so I do have a passion for it, but I'm also aware of the fact that in the Christian tradition, um, there hasn't always been open acceptance of literature. I mean, there are a lot of people today in the church who would say, well, I don't read novels because they're made up, right. you know, they're not even true. So why would I want to read lies? Mm-hmm. Um, that's not unique to the church. You'll meet a lot of people who will say things like, well, I only read, you know, history or philosophy or whatever it is. I don't read literature because I'm, I'm a serious person or, you know, whatever it is. I think those attitudes really are based on misconceptions of what, what novels are, what storytelling is all about. And so when you understand it rightly, it makes perfect sense that it would be a Christian calling. Well, say more about that. Maybe first we should get into that idea that fiction is not true and therefore dangerous. You say that's a misconception. What's a better way to think about fiction? Well, so the way I like to think about fiction, and I think this this applies to all of the arts, is there's a search for truth, but it's by other means. We live in an age where we have an assumption that the only things that are real are material, and that the only way to understand them is through the scientific method. That's not entirely right. I mean... It's true as far as it goes, like the material world is real and the scientific method is a way of gaining knowledge about that world. But there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of by a materialist. And so art, fiction in particular, even though it's made up, is still a a way of going after truth. It, It has its own kind of, we might call scientific method it's just not reproducible results it's something else if you ever read john gardner's book on moral fiction he breaks this down really well and describes the the method that fiction uses to go after truth he says it's characters who subtly embody values who are which are tested with clear but inexpressible results in action so Say that to, one more time. <laughs> yeah, to, to just really simple. So a character embodies a value, and the truth of that value is tested by the story through action. And the results of that test will be clear but inexpressible. Like you'll need the story in order to have the, the result. It wouldn't be enough to just reduce it to a moral. Right. It's going to be more complex than that. So... If we were thinking of a really simple example, 
you might think of uh, Lord of the Rings. When I ask students if there's a character in Lord of the Rings who seems to embody a value, they often will think of Sam. Mm -hmm. And the value that he embodies is loyalty. Now, in a bad story, the way that you would know Sam is loyal is you just have a lot of people talking about Sam and they would say things like, wow, Sam's really loyal. But in this story, the way we know this is that his loyalty is tested, yeah. right? He's constantly being pushed against by Frodo, who tries to leave him behind. He has his loyalty tested. He's given good reason to turn away from the quest and instead he proves loyal. And when, you know, at the foot of Mount Doom, he picks Frodo up and yeah. carries him towards the, uh, the frothing lava. You yeah. know, uh, the value of loyalty is vindicated. Right. You know, when that moment happens, you feel the truth of loyalty, that, that it's a good thing to be loyal. That's something you really don't get in a test tube, right? There might be other ways science might try to, to talk about loyalty, but oftentimes those attempts would seem reductionistic to us, kind of the way when science tries to talk about love and talks about it as like chemical reactions in the brain or something. And we think, well, that might be part of it, but that is not the whole thing. Right. So art has a way of getting at these truths that we feel deeply evaluating those things and holding them up to us. Of course, as I describe that, you also see that there's a problem, which is that a story can also hold up a value to you that is wrong and make you like it anyway. Yeah. You know, anyone who's ever, you know, spent any time with, popular art knows that in every era there are these sort of stock themes certain ideas that will recur over and over again and just because they're popular doesn't mean they're true now the ones of our own time like you know if you watch disney movies or something you know you're, you're gonna get some sort of a um variation on you know be yourself live your dream you can be whatever you want to be something like that yeah, let it go yeah, yeah. Frozen. That feels true to us because it's like a message of our moment. It's what we want to hear. Mm -hmm. But if you go back a few generations to, to the messages of their moment that no one questioned, sometimes they're, they're surprisingly distasteful. Mm -hmm. And this illustrates to us, I think, the, the difficulty, right? Because in order to find truth, that artistic method has to be pursued with honesty, right? It has to be grounded in the world that really is, not just in the ideology or misconceptions of the author. Mm. So on the one hand, I think for any, any believer who's interested in the created world, fiction, narrative, is a way to explore the reality of that world. But for those of us who create these stories, there's also a, a call to a rigorous honesty to tell the truth about the world, not just to, to say whatever you want to say or whatever people want to hear. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. In the last episode, we talked a little bit about narrative theology and 
I know that there are other fields of study that take up narrative as a as a way of knowing, as an epistemology. And you're, I think you're saying something like that. It really is a way at getting at some sort of knowing, some form of truth. And that means that you can error. But narrative... <laughs> narrative is a is a means for us to come at some truth that we otherwise couldn't get at almost yeah i think that's right that um art in general is like that Mm -hmm. that there are things that we can only approach through the arts because we can only know them analogically there are things that we can only grasp through some sort of metaphor and so a painting or a piece of music or a poem or a novel might be the only way to experience that truth. It's not something that we can get at through some other means. Um, That I think is, is the reason why these forms of human expression that we kind of group together as the humanities are so important you know, right now, I think in, in our modern moment, there's a, a huge emphasis on like STEM fields and humanities is bad. And, and I get why that is, because the humanities have been colonized by critical theories that um, are more about the theories than they are about the subject, let's say. That's way oversimplified, <laughs> and we could argue about that. But but. I think there's a reason why like the humanities have lost confidence in what they were and they, mm-hmm. they've, they've sought ways to make themselves relevant, whatever. But in an ideal world, there's a place for all of those things. And I think we need to take them more seriously than we do. Hmm. Recently I was reading uh, the new Cormac McCarthy novel. Mm-hmm. We've talked about him a little bit, you know, I'm a big fan, but, his new novel was the first that I've set down closed before finishing it because I was actually afraid of what it was doing to my mind. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm serious. I I mean, last winter I read the road and if anyone out there has read the road or seen the movie, you'll know that one's really bleak, Uh but there's a little bit of, you know, hope here and there at least. And I found it kind of nice in the middle of winter. Now this time his new one, um, it's called Stella Maris was just i found the main character almost demonic Hmm. in her attitude towards frankly reality and and as i was reading it i just you know it was like 100 pages in 120 pages in and i was getting depressed yeah and kind of what i i was was feeling what you were talking about like there's a pursuit of some sort of tarnished truth here but there's also all kinds of lies happening yeah. and it's so have you ever had that experience with a novel? Oh, of course. Yeah. And and I think, you know, saying literature is good in the abstract right. doesn't mean that every particular instance is going to be good, right? Yeah. And yeah. and and even honestly, I'm a big fan of having strong reactions to things <laughs> and I I know what it's like to to hate a book that I know is good. Yeah. You know, that, that it's, it's technically brilliant or, you know, even on some level truthful, but there's something about it that Mm -hmm. I just react strongly against. And, and I think especially for an artist, a, a lot of our, formation happens as a reaction against things that, that were like, no, this isn't the way I would do it, or this isn't 
what I believe about the world, and and I think all of that is is um, is right, and it speaks to the power that this approach to truth has, right? That you don't read a novel that is full of ideas that you find abhorrent and think, well, it's just made up. Right. You know, it doesn't matter. It's not true. I mean, you react violently sometimes to these things. I I had a friend who used to always tell the story of finishing Dickens's Bleak House. I think he was sitting at the top of his dorm building. And when he was done, he threw the book (laughs) off the building, you know, to its doom because he was so disgusted with it. And, and, and I love that book and, and he now has come to, to love it as well. But it's those kinds of reactions are not at all inconsistent with what I'm saying here. You know, if you think about it this way, um, you mentioned narrative theology. So when we talk about narrative and story as, as a kind of truth or way, way of knowing ourselves, the idea is that societies define themselves and their members through the stories that they tell. Uh, if you think about what it means to be an American, you will start thinking about a lot of stories, you know, stories about the founding fathers, about various battles, uh, flags that were blown up by artillery, but in the morning we're still there, you know, like all of those stories come together and they create a kind of sense of who we are. Yeah. And if you were an Israelite, you had inherited a bunch of stories of God's work, of your deliverance, the, the, the specialness of your people. All of those stories together defined who you were as a people. And it's interesting to see that God superintends that identity building through storytelling. Right, it's it's God in Scripture who's preserving these stories as a way of passing these things down. So, when you think about story that way, something else opens up, which is even if the stories are not true, like when we look at American history, a lot of the stories that we've told ourselves, if we actually go back, aren't really what really happens. And yet, the stories collectively do tell the truth, maybe not about the events, but about the people who define themselves with the stories. Right? So if I want to understand what Americans are like, knowing their stories helps me understand their psychology. It tells me the truth about them, even if the stories themselves are, are not always truthful. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So there's an insight that literature art can give us it can tell us the truth about the storytellers about the people who these stories resonate with Mm -hmm. even if the stories themselves are are not true so as a person who loves literature you know i i love books that i think of as being really truthful you know dostoevsky is an example i read dostoevsky i'm like yeah this is this is right on but there's other authors i can read and i'm like no i don't think he's right about the world i don't I don't agree with his conclusions, but I see the value of his work because what he's saying is very much the way people at this time thought of themselves right. or the way that we think of ourselves now, right? There are authors today that I, I don't have a lot in common with in terms of you know my worldview, but I value their work because I feel like in reading them, I understand this world better, this society better. So it can also function that way, you know, where the stories help us understand one another, even if 
the truths they're telling are inadvertent. They're they're mythic in mm-hmm. that sense almost. Yeah, C.S. Lewis talked about all the different myths and Christianity being the true myth. I, th- I think he was getting right. into something there. Yeah. I think too on the, so you're talking about the societal level. At an individual level, I have found that stories help me try on or see the possibilities of character mm-hmm. in particular. And this is probably, you know, a very novice observation, but we need to see how certain characters behave in certain situations. You mentioned Sam. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we just need a model of what a, a loyal friend looks like rather than being told, Hey, here's what loyal people do X, Y, Z, if you want to do that, or Hey, here's what bad people do. Yeah. Don't do those things. Instead, when we're given a, a story, a character who has this value and they're they're facing trials and they persist or don't, we can almost picture ourselves in their shoes and imagine what if I face something like that? Or, you know, how how should I act if ever faced with a situation like that? Yeah. There is a type of literature that was really popular in the Victorian era, and it was like, you know, novels of moral instruction, Yeah, where especially for young people, you know, they would be adventure novels, but they're meant to inculcate values in the reader, Mm -hmm. make them be heroic and self-sacrificing and morally upstanding, things like that. Uh, That, you know, is, is a somewhat simple approach, but it does illustrate... I think the idea that by reading literature, we, in a sense, have the opportunity to assimilate or even live other lives and experiences to try on other experiences, see through a different set of eyes, so that you gain a kind of understanding that you ordinarily could only gain through long experience, so that I think it's fair to say that that people who read novels are acquainted with, you know, the human condition in ways that people who don't often are not. Uh, something storytelling gives us, yep. I think, is, is that. Um, I don't know that I would say like that this is the reason, you know, this is right. the reason you should read novels that you will gain this sort of understanding mm-hmm. because I don't want to make it sound that pragmatic. Yeah. But, I did give an interview to the Gospel Coalition years ago where I said I wish pastors would read less theology and more fiction, and I stand behind that. Now, Gospel Coalition hasn't been calling recently, <laughs> perhaps <laughs> you can guess why, but, but you know, I, I thought there's a real value to steeping yourself in stories, being a good interpreter of stories, mm-hmm. and through that, becoming a better student of humanity, understanding people and how they work, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. There's another application of that idea, though, that that the the story lets you experience another life. Uh, The novelist Graham Greene once wrote that a ruling passion gives to a shelf of novels the unity of a system. (laughs) And I've loved that quote ever since I first came across it because it suggests the way that certain artists in particular can become fixated or obsessed on telling the same story again and again and again. And 
that fascinates me. Like why those stories stick in our minds and why we would want to read the same story over and over again. When you think about genres, right? Uh, people who read romance novels are reading the same story over and yeah. over again. If you read, you know, detective stories like, like I do, you're reading more or less the same story over and over and over again. To just today, I finished the Western novel Riders of the Purple Sage by Zane Grey. Yeah. And I just saw, you know, I saw it all coming. Right. But I, I liked it. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think, you know, that that's another kind of feeling to interrogate. Like, mm-hmm. why is it that these sort of archetypal stories resonate? What is it that they're telling us? There's a, a novelist I've been reading for years, Georges Seminon, who is one of those guys who, who I think kind of tells the same story over and over again. And for him, like one of his recurring narratives is, you know, some middle-aged everyman going about his business and then something happens that shakes things up and gives him this opportunity to live this different life. Mm. Um, You know, somebody gives him a briefcase full of money or he witnesses something he shouldn't have seen or something happens. And suddenly he has this, this essentially like, like uh, almost like a a side mission opens (laughs) up, you know, and like he could go off in, in this whole other direction and I can't tell you how many of these books I've read that have the same basic formula. And maybe, you know, as a middle-aged guy, I find that fascinating. You know, mm-hmm. when someone gives me the briefcase full of money or whatever, I'll know what to do you yeah. know, or what not to do. Yeah. But I think, again, the, the, those stories and those structures that appeal to us are also telling us a truth about ourselves, right? They're helping us think more about what our fixations our ambitions our fears really are and so in that sense as well i think there can be real value to taking stories seriously uh, even stories that we don't agree with or stories that aren't written from our point of view uh, can give us value in that way well in a moment i want to ask if you're reading any novels or if you've read any recently so you can put that in the back of your mind but first more broadly i'd like to talk about fiction that you would recommend to Christians perhaps beyond the traditional authors that we sometimes think of as, as Christian novelists like Tolkien or Lewis. I think more recently someone like Marilyn Robinson has become really popular for great reasons, but I trust that you know lots of other authors that I don't, you know, who else do you recommend to people you know, I always say there's no bad place to start. And yeah. I think oftentimes, you know, I'm not I'm not a great list maker. And I think the reason is that I have too promiscuous a taste. You know, like <laughs> I, I'll read good books, I'll read bad books. Yeah. I'll, you know, like there's something to derive from all of them. Right. So I have favorite authors that I've gone back to again mm-hmm. and again. I don't necessarily say that like they're the greatest mm-hmm. Um, but for me, they've served some sort of purpose. I mentioned Graham Greene earlier, and he's one that that I recommend just because there's something about his writing that I, I find really elegant, but his stories fascinate me. Um, I've talked about Flannery O'Connor before, mm-hmm. and, and Flannery O'Connor is a great example of someone who, in in one sense, like her sensibility and the kind of story she tells 
really have no appeal to me at all. Like it's all Southern Gothic and it's not my thing at all. But for whatever reason, when she's doing it, I'm there for it. Um, I think she's, you know, not quite as standard as, as C.S. Lewis or Tolkien, but just about in Christian circles. So that's definitely not a deep cut or anything, but, but even so I, I, I think she's great. And another kind of along those lines would be Walker Percy, mm-hmm. who I think maybe used to be more popular than he is now, but is in that same uh, circle of kind of 20th century Catholic novelists yeah. that that uh, had a real flourishing during that period. And, and I think he's worth checking out. Um, Wendell Berry comes to mind too. Wendell Berry, he's, you know. Yeah, Wendell Berry, I think is, is also like, you know, again, like not a deep cut, like, like any, any evangelical hipster who, you know, has, has entered a bookstore knows about Wendell Berry, but, but for good reason, you know, I mean, if you read Wendell Berry's fiction and not everybody does, Mm. but you read his fiction, it's really incredible. He has no right to, to write as well as he does in as many genres as he does, (laughs) but, but his, his fiction is incredibly good. Mm. Um, You know, I I think for me, I've also read widely, you know, in, in, quote unquote, non-Christian circles. And, and I, I'll admit when it comes to fiction, my first proclivity is not towards what we might call spiritual writing. You know, I think there's a genre of sanctified Christian literature that is, you know, valuable and, and interesting, but I've always been more intrigued, not so much by like writing about spiritual life as about stories that engage with, you know, biblical ideas mm-hmm. on more the philosophical level. And so um, there's a lot of good writing out there, you know, fiction that's sort of about faith and the struggle of faith and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, the ones that, that I tend to be more fascinated by are the ones that are more thematic, if that makes sense. Yeah. They're wrestling more with the ideas. Mm-hmm. Um but also, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I love, as a crime writer, you know, there are some incredible crime writers like Seminole, like um, James Lee Burke, um, who is still writing today in, in his advanced years, but who have a moral dimension and, and oftentimes will trigger appreciation in me on that deeper level um i don't want to oversell yeah either of them but but i i appreciate when people who are writing you know about crime or whatever are also concerned about the moral universe and you know what it means to either be you know the criminal or the detective yeah well i think we could do a whole episode on crime novels actually because i i'm curious how that genre fits into your overall understanding of fiction but we'll save that for a yeah, later yeah we day. should do that we that'd should be, do that that'd be fun
Thanks for listening to the commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org. 